0: trigger warning this podcast contains a brief discussion about suicide and suicidality which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting so please listen with caution guys, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by VENT, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. There are many people who I've put on my dream list of podcast guests when I started this podcast three years ago and my special guest for this episode is definitely one of those and someone whose documentaries I have spent a lot of my life engrossed in watching on the BBC. Gordon Buchanan is a Scottish wildlife photographer and filmmaker who has made documentaries for over 20 years. Gordon has made a number of wonderful, intense and thrilling films and series including the likes of Big Cat Diary, Lost Land of the Volcano, The Bear Family and Me, The Polar Bear Family and Me, Lost Land of the Tiger, Lost Land of the Jaguar, Leopard in the City and Tribes, Predators and Me and that is just to name a few there are loads of others which you can go and watch for yourself if you want to. He has survived being attacked by a polar bear in his camera nest in the Arctic. He swam in a river inhabited by a gigantic crocodile in New Guinea who is worshipped by the village's inhabitants. He sat alongside wild hyenas in Ethiopia and discovered the world's largest rat, where he was part of the team who discovered many new other species of animals in the volcano Mount Bisavi in New Guinea. In this episode, we discuss how Gordon broke into the world of wildlife filmmaking from his humble background on the Isle of Mull in Scotland, those life-threatening moments he has experienced being away from his family for periods of time whilst filming, and the impact that had on his mental health. For Gordon's own mental health, 10 years ago, he had an epiphany about his mental health and realised he had a lot of mental health challenges as a child that he never identified or was aware of. In that year, he was approaching burnout, but he didn't recognise it before it arrived and it brought about a full blown period of depression and what he describes as a breakdown of sorts. Gordon came to realise he had this depressive tendency throughout his life and he started looking into how he could regain control of it and manage the ups, the downs and the several relapses he has had since that initial moment. When Gordon has gone through these periods, he has used medication to help him get better before coming off of them. And he has been on and off medication throughout the last 10 years. We finished by talking about COVID-19 and the reset that gave him for his mental health and his life. We talk about how he's achieved a greater level of self-awareness about his mental health, reconciling people's assumptions they make about him when it comes to disclosing his mental health and how he's moved forward with his life. So this is my check-in with the one, the only, the absolute legendary, Gordon Buchanan went. It is a very big and surreal moment for the Just Checking In pod, but Gordon Buchanan... Welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Absolutely no pressure here, but I said to your fair, you are literally one of my dream guests I've wanted to have on the pod since I started this three years ago. So thank you to your PA for responding to my email and thank you to you for coming on and let me check in with you. How are you, mate? Yeah, all good. All good. I just got back from Brazil yesterday, so
1: I'm kind of not jet lagged. It's quite a kind of tiring shoot. So yeah, I just feel a little bit zoned out. But that's, yeah, I kind of feel that way a lot of the time
0: anyway. (laughs) I'm sure you do, mate. I've got so many questions about all the amazing films that I watched on the BBC and your mental health journey you're discussing openly for the first time as well. So without further delay, mate, are you ready to start the show? All good. Ready to go. I want to start the pod by talking about this wildlife filmmaking photography career you've had, Gordon, for so many years. And... You grew up on a little island called the Isle of Mull in Scotland. So how and why did this become your dream? What drew you into sort of wildlife documentaries and the journey to where you are today?
1: In many ways, I didn't really have time for this to become my dream. It is a dream job for lots of people, you know, friends, people that just bump into think that I've got the best job in the world. And I do, you know, I do love what I do. But the way that it kind of evolved was that I was at school, 16 really didn't know what i was going to do with myself i knew that i wanted to leave mull at some point and i I kind of wanted to do I i knew that i wanted to do something different and i wanted sort of adventure in life and then when i was 16 i met a wildlife cameraman who lived on the island and i kind of thought god that sounds like the most amazing job. So I helped him out here and there with things and we got on really well. And within the year, he offered me the job as his assistant. So yeah, it was beyond my wildest dreams that I would ever get a job as his assistant. So it wasn't even on my radar. I didn't think about it. So when he offered me the job, I was like, geez, yes, I packed in school and off I went.
0: Like you said, you dropped out of school and you ended up going to Sierra Leone with him for a whole year. And this is a man called Nick Gordon, who was your mentor and the person who gave you your first sort of big break. What was that experience like? Because Sierra Leone at that time was, I imagine, a country of quite high tension before its eventual civil war in the 1990s.
1: Yeah, at that time, so it was in 19, it was January the 4th, 1990 that I left Mull, and I'd never been abroad before, never been on a plane, and, you know, I didn't know anything about the world, really, and certainly didn't know anything about the country I was going to, and and at that time, Sierra Leone was the most poverty-stricken country in the world, so I think maybe being an optimist, I was thinking that this was, you know, I think probably taking my lead from wildlife documentaries, which I love watching, I thought, oh, it's all going to be lions and elephants and acacia trees and and gin and tonics. And, you know, it was horrific, you know, not just for me, Nick was 20 years older than me. Yeah, the level of poverty was a lot to take in. So it was was culture shock, but then I think just that poverty shock as well. Yeah, I just can't imagine that people had to live like that, you know, it was like going back in time and sort of stepping into medieval Britain.
0: (laughs) You spent four years working as Nick's assistant and you went to some other far fun places that you probably never imagined you thought you would like Venezuela and Brazil. So how do you look back on this experience and what was that mental health impact as well being away from home for such long periods? I know you said you wanted to leave Yalamal but I guess the reality of when you actually do leave and you're away for your family can be very different to what you imagine. Yeah
1: I mean it was kind of felt like a golden opportunity or this sort of, you know, dream chance at doing something or entering a career that, you know, a lot of people would like to do. But the reality of it at the age of seventeen, never having been away from my family and my friends. I suppose sort of leaving Mull wasn't a problem. I didn't miss the island as such. I but uh, it was a lot to deal with at that age a time when all of my mates were at school for another kind of year the year that I was in Sierra Leone they left high school and then they all came to Glasgow and shared a flat together I was aware that I was missing out on a huge amount at that time in life but I kind of was also aware that this was it was obviously a great opportunity but it felt like my only opportunity it was the only chance that I had to do something or maybe kind of to prove myself as well i think through all of school you know i was kind of just there and i don't think any teacher ever thought i would amount to anything well i was disruptive but indirectly i would always sort of you know i was like dumb enough to come up with stupid things that would get a laugh but i was clever enough to get someone else to do it so i never got into (laughs) trouble but i got lots of other people into trouble
0: (laughs) I want to talk about your move to go independent now because after working with Nick you took that leap and you bought your own kit so how big a decision did it feel at the time and and how did you also go about landing work yourself on your own and developing yourself I guess not just as a cameraman but a presenter too which you did eventually.
1: Well once I finished working with Nick because that was four years from sort of the age of 17 till I was sort of my early 20s and I was still... Unsure whether that was the life that I wanted to lead because the trips were so long it's it's changed a lot now, but you know there was a lot of sacrifices I had made so once I finished with Nick, I thought long and hard about what I wanted to do, but again it was you know I didn't have any other options really I kind of you know I hadn't left school with any grades. I came from a family that didn't have money, so you know this was. The kind of path of you know the obvious path for me to take was just kind of keep on going and hope that it paid off in the in the long run i mean it was really difficult it was a kind of challenging four years but i was aware that i was learning a lot about the world and a lot about myself and a lot about being i would not say i felt like i was an adult but kind of being grown up to ha- enough to have have a job and actually you know have people that depended on you i suppose beyond your family and friends
0: I want to talk about some of my favourite films of yours that you've either been involved in or you've directly directed gordon so i absolutely loved big cat diary but the film about big cats i want to discuss first is the lost land of the tiger because of the objective behind the film in bhutan where you filmed more than anything so tell the listeners about why it felt like such an important moment for the survival of wild tigers and also that moment obviously spoilers but when you caught one on camera when you'd Mm. almost lost hope of seeing them because they're such elusive creatures
1: Yeah, this was was an expedition series that kind of became known as the Lost Lands. And we had done various expeditions with a camera team, but also, importantly, with experts and scientists. And the kind of mission was to go to different parts of the world to do a rapid assessment and try and find all the animals that live there, but also the kind of the big drive was to try and find new species in the hope that these places could be better protected or protected because some of those places were, you know, hadn't had any protection whatsoever. And when we came to Lost Land of the Tiger, this was looking for tigers living at altitude or trying to establish how high up into the Himalayas these tigers could live. So in India, you know, most of the tigers in the world live they were living in isolation in these little national parks and living in isolation like that makes them really vulnerable. So unless you can create wildlife corridors or join these small pockets up, the future survival of tigers was really in doubt. Whereas if you've got a part of the Himalayas, where the tigers were known to live in parts of the Himalayas, but if we could establish how high up in the Himalayas they could be, you could sort of, you know, better protect that whole Himalayan range, you know, as a tiger habitat. And we went there and spent weeks and weeks and weeks searching for tigers. We did find tigers in, in areas much, much lower down at the foothills of the Himalayas, but we already knew that they were there. That was well documented. But we started going right up into the the himalayas putting out camera traps and after about six weeks there there was no concrete evidence at all there was no tracks no sort of scat or you know no speaking to local people nobody had said yeah yeah we see tigers here there was absolutely no evidence of them whatsoever so i think the whole team it felt like we weren't quite at the end but it felt like it was a massive failure because you know it felt like a bigger chance of finding yeti than there was of finding tigers and then the last thing that that we did was to bring in all these camera traps that had been up some of them had been up for months by that point and there it was and sort of one of the camera traps i opened and it you know was still sitting on the track where the track the camera had been mounted and i was just blown away that there was a tiger there and we're on to find tigers on different camera traps at even higher elevation and it was a big huge moment for the whole team but you know for me personally it was a it was a very emotional moment because suddenly you knew that at these altitudes across the Himalayas there was a place that tigers could live not in high densities but it was a place that they could they could call home and suddenly the kind of little light at the end of the tunnel of tiger conservation started to kind of flicker a bit a bit more brightly.
0: When you're watching that program you really get a sense as the viewer of how majestic and magisterial, I would say, that tigers are as creatures. Did you feel that when you're seeing them in the flesh?
1: Yeah, you do. I I mean,
0: yes and no. I mean, the first time that
1: I actually saw tigers in the wild was in a national park in, in India, and it was tiger tourism, but it wasn't really well-managed ecotourism. Mm. And my first encounter with a tiger you know i was on elephant back there was another five elephants with as many people crammed onto them as possible and they had encircled this tiger and i looked at this poor animal and realized that this wasn't how it wanted to live its life it just had to live its life like that and put up with all of this disturbance because it had absolutely nowhere else to go so it was weird you know there were other moments on that trip when i'd be alone in the morning and have these tiger encounters and it was you know sensational. But yeah, I just felt so sorry for them that we had robbed them of so much habitat that the only chance they had to survive was putting up with a huge amount of human disturbance. And had it it been better managed, it it shouldn't have to be like that. And you can't really blame you know, the people on the ground, because it's sort of, that's, you know, huge amount of money comes into that area from tiger tourism, for lodges and camps and drivers and guides. It kind of had just got out of control, just needed to be kind of probably a bit more respect for the tigers
0: as individuals, and less for the revenue that they could generate. The next Lost Land film that I want to discuss with you, and the one which feels like, almost like a modern piece of history in many ways which is the lost land of the volcano where you travel to the island of new guinea to an unexplored volcano called mount Basavi. so when you found out you were doing this how big a moment did that feel and just tell the listeners about what you discovered yeah well this was another expedition that we
1: did and i think in in many ways the sort of most exciting part is we had this big meeting with the whole team where the, the exec producer laid out where we were going to go specifically and what the mission was and that was really exciting because the forests of Papua New Guinea you know they haven't really been studied well nowhere near studied as much as other forest habitats around the world so we knew almost with certainty that if we did our jobs right we were going to find new species on the previous expeditions we'd found some new species of fish in Guyana we found new insect species, which is quite easy because, you know, there's so, so much of insect life hasn't been studied. But in Papua New Guinea, we discovered a whole range of different animals that were completely new to science, from tiny little bats all the way up to the biggest rat or <laughs> biggest known known rat in the world. So that was, yeah, looking back on it and watching the programme now, you realise that, you know, it was a huge moment. But when you're out there you kind of, it kind of just becomes a job. I mean, it's amazing, and the excitement, is all the build-up, but when you're actually in the country, walking through those forests in a really difficult, uncomfortable environment, you're just going from day to day and trying to do your job. So the excitement sort of disappears. I think it's not until the programme is put together. I think that's sort of, for me, having been making wildlife documentaries for such a long time, you're kind of waiting for the audience. It's not over until it goes out in television and you get the feedback from the the audience. But thankfully, it got, you know, it was really, not just popular, but it was really important because we'd sort of, you know, hopefully help conserve those forests better.
0: There was another brilliant moment where Steve Baxhaw, the legend, I should say, that is Steve Baxhaw, held a Bosavi silky couscous, I think I'm pronouncing that right, in his arms, and it, it was almost like a pet and that mm. was like the rap as well. It was almost docile to you, wasn't it? I mean, did it just feel like it wasn't even real life because of the things that you were experiencing?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's few, even the sort of deepest depths of the Amazon and these far-flung places, there's not many places in the world that people haven't been to. And a lot of the places in the world where people haven't been to, there's not much there. You know, high peaks in Greenland, you know, no one's ever been up to, you know, majority of them. But other places in the world there'd been people living for tens of thousands of years and in Papua New Guinea there'd been people living there for thousands of years but because of the geography this long extinct volcano it was so precipitous that nobody ever really nobody needed to go there so the animals had lived there free from fear of people free from hunting so when we rock up these animals, you know, the animals aren't sort of have to, they have to have learned fear through their lives or have that instinctive fear that's sort of passed on from sort of generation to generation. So when we show up, the animals, there, are like, well, I don't know what that is. I haven't learned to be scared of it. So you could literally walk up to all of these, all of these animals, completely wild animals that had never seen people. And yeah, you could <laughs> pick one up
0: and study it. You clearly also have a love of bears and you've made two films about big bears in the wild. The first was called The Bear Family and Me where you ensconced yourself essentially with a family of bears but the one I really want to discuss with you is The Polar Bear Family and Me which contains and people can still watch this on YouTube one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen on television where you're in a camera pod in the Arctic and a polar bear approaches you and in your communication you go into a mode where you probably did in the bear family meal you're making those communicative noises and then you sort of realize that actually (laughs) this bear sees you was food so just tell the listeners about that extraordinary moment what was going for your head
1: yeah so we had done the the series with the black bears and that was me for you know good part of a year across across their year getting very close to a habituated family of, of black bears so the BBC that series Went down really well, and it was just a, such a joy to to work on it. The BBC wanted to do something else similar, and they asked me what it would be. And I straight away, you know, I'd always wanted to film polar bears. But the big difference between black bears and polar bears is that polar bears Aggression. not all of them. There's just yeah, they on occasions see us as food. So I wasn't going to be able to be you know up close to these bears, like you know, a huge amount of proximity or very close to them. So we had this sort of bright idea that it was the intention was to use this perspex filming pod at the den when we found a a mother bear with young cubs the plan was that i could set myself up be in this pod i wouldn't have to disturb her by constantly having to run away so with polar bears generally if you're 20 meters away that's sort of fine but if they start coming any closer than that you have to pull out of the area on skidoos or anything that can Go faster than a than a polar bear, but I thought <laughs> with well, this pod, if I'm in that, you know, I could be safe and close and carry on filming. And as it turned out, the den or the female that we'd we'd found, she wasn't remotely interested in in us. We spent more time with her than than any other bear, and at no point did she ever come any closer than twenty meters. She kind of she was not oblivious to us, but she pretty much ignored us. She wasn't interested at all. But we've continued to use this pod out on the ice to hopefully film bears hunting. And other bears just had ignored it. But this one occasion, one afternoon, there's a huge female and she came up. And not only did she come much closer than any bear, but she kind of twigged that there was something edible on the inside. And she spent, you know, a good 40, 50 minutes trying to get into this thing while I was inside it. So it was, yeah, not something that I'd ever want to to repeat at all and yeah i suppose i was yeah a lot closer to a live polar bear than anyone that was still alive if it's ever
0: been. I was going to say, yeah. The final film that I wanted to discuss with you, Gordon, in depth and which produced equally, I think, as astonishing moments as your encounter with that polar bear is Tribes, Predators and Me. So why did you want to initially explore this relationship between humans in these sometimes remote communities, sometimes, you know, city communities like the lepers were and hyenas and the predators or at times apex predators the humans lived alongside
1: yeah i'd always been
0: interested in, in
1: indigenous communities and tribal people back from when i was in sierra leone we were living and working alongside the mende tribe and it was you know i found the people fascinating their culture and as of you know as i traveled in venezuela and then in brazil i'd also spent time with tribal people but we, we'd never really featured them in any big way in any of the documentaries my desire to do something with tribal people kind of predated oh gosh what's his name uh Bruce Parry. Bruce Parry did that tribe series, which is a long time ago. But before that, I was like, I want to do something. When he did his his series, which ran for quite a few years, I thought, well, I've kind of missed the boat on that. But then quite a number of years later, I thought, well, actually, you know, what if we if we look at tribal people and their relationship with wild animals? And it wasn't my idea to focus on the predators. It was just more about their sort of way of life and relationship with the forest or the places that he lived in, but then we didn't quite get that past the BBC, and it kind of it was toing and froing. Well, how can we sharpen our focus on this? And then Ted Oakes, as a producer, came up with a great idea. It's that like, well, why why don't we just find tribal people that have got a unique relationship with a big predator because i suppose that for most people that's the most unusual thing of all because there's lots of animals that they hunt and lots of animals that they live alongside but these are potentially dangerous animals and we wanted to find out what that relationship was about and in most cases it was a relationship of respect and understanding And it was that respect and understanding of these animals that allowed these people to live alongside them and, and stay stay completely safe
0: there was a lot of different creatures that you explored in that series. One was hyenas, which you broke down a lot of myths, I think, because historically hyenas have been maybe anthropomorphized as quite nasty creatures. Perhaps the Lion King probably has a lot to blame for that. But the creature that I wanted to focus on and the episode which always sticks with me, Gordon, is crocodiles, which mm-hmm. you did in New Guinea. And in particular, one elusive Mammoth crocodile. Now, you never found it, unfortunately, but you said off air to me you found its footprint and it felt like you were in Jurassic Park. So just tell me about that experience and what you discovered when you spoke to the people.
1: Yeah, we, we sort of went back to Papua New Guinea and went up the Sepik River, which is, you know, a really remote part of the world. You know, it's weird because I think back. I travel a lot to remote places, so if one place is just that little bit further, I'm not thinking, God, this is sort of incredibly remote. It's not until you actually, you know, reflect on it, you think it really was in the middle of of nowhere, and the people that we were living with, they were pretty much culturally intact. They had machetes and axes and pots and pans. But other than that, they were living exactly as they had for thousands of years. And this one tribe that we visited had this really fascinating relationship with these huge saltwater crocodiles. Talking about polar bears are one of the few animals on the planet that occasionally see us as food. And saltwater crocodiles are another one of those animals that, you know, routinely do attack people. And, and here was this community that were living alongside these monster crocodiles. And there was k- kids swimming in the, the rivers, in the lakes. So there was this sort of really unique, unusual story of of these people coexisting with these huge, huge crocodiles. And we went out and we did see some, you know, the biggest crocs that I've ever that I've ever seen. But the one particular one that we went looking for, we actually may have spotted it a distance in the water so you could see the head and the head was like maybe kind of a meter and a half long a crocodile with a head that size it's got a whole lot more body behind it and I saw we're just traveling along the side of the river and I saw some kind of disturbed mud on the bank and I thought let's go over and just see what that was and for most animals you know a bit of tiger or a snake you're looking at a kind of quite a distinctive set of of tracks and I saw this disturbed mud and I got out and I was like I don't know what this is something's been here but I couldn't tell what it was and I realised that actually I was sitting in the middle of the huge scrape that his body had made and you could see these four feet that were miles apart from each other and I realised that I was sitting in this outline of this huge huge crocodile And you'd think you'd never set foot in the water again. But I got back to the village and, yeah, the people saying, yeah, no, this huge crocodile, it lives in this lake and it protects us from other crocodiles. So they saw this huge crocodile as being their protector and it kept all of the kind of maybe more menacing crocodiles out of the the lake. So I did this very worrying swim across the lake with one of the women from the village. Because I thought she was joking because she said, oh, we'll, sw- we'll swim back. Oh, no, I, su- I think I said, I suggested like jokingly. I said, oh, well, if you're not scared of this crocodile, why don't we swim back to the village? And she was like, yeah, OK. So she <laughs> put her bag in the boat and started wading into the water. And I thought, this is this kind of like five foot two woman. And I thought, OK, I'll go for it. And she and I swam across this lake. And, you know, I, I actually did feel safe. And looking back on, I think people watching the documentary think that's absolutely crazy. But, you know, one thing that people, you know, people do, do do stupid things. But, you know, one thing that we do and we can do well is trust other people. And with all these tribe spreaders and me programs, it was a lesson in trust is finding out a bit people's culture finding about, about them as, as individuals and kind of putting your life in their hands yeah it was one of those things unlike the polar bear it's something that i would do again maybe not that willingly but if i had a companion <laughs> encouraging me i probably would do it but yeah all of these things sort of the they look crazy but yeah, you can kind have of assessed that risk. And I'm all for not ignoring the risk, but assessing the risk and actually saying, okay, I'm confident and comfortable enough to do this. And I'm sort of making a point that we shouldn't look at every saltwater crocodile and say they're, they're dangerous. You shouldn't look at every great white shark and say that it's dangerous, it's out to, to get you, because that's simply not, not the case. So, you know, I'd, I'd hate for anyone to think that doing that as a as a stunt, I'm kind of doing it to make a point that people can coexist with these predators, and and you know through their knowledge and experience of them, they can coexist.
0: Let's reflect then on this journey that you've gone on over these years, Gordon. So first of all, what has been your proudest achievement along this journey?
1: Um, I think probably one of my proudest achievements was not in front of the camera when I was as an assistant and then started learning that, you know, learning to be a cameraman, I always kind of wanted to kind of just make a film that was going to win an award for cinematography. Awards now don't really kind of, it's great if you get them, but yeah, not sort of out chasing that, but back in the early days, because I'd gone to a big wildlife film festival, the kind of biggest wildlife film festival in the world, as an assistant, and thought, God, one day, not I'm going to be up there, but I thought one day I want to be up there. I made a film in India on tigers. It's the second film I've made on, on tigers. And I just kind of spent that whole time there for eight months just trying to make the most beautiful film that, that I could. And really kind of, yeah, thought carefully about how I could do that and sort of using, you know, it was a beautiful national park and obviously filming tigers, so it's a bit of a gift. So this story doesn't end that well, but I got into this, I was one of the finalists for the world's biggest wildlife filmmaking festivals. And I was in the final as a cinematographer. So it was down to, I think, three, three people in the end i didn't win it but actually at the time i was really i was really proud that i'd made it to the yeah you know, in the top the top three for my skills as a cinematographer and as a filmmaker it would have been a hell of a lot better to say that i've won it but that does remain a really proud moment i've I've still got the, i've got the certificate to say that i was a nominee but i haven't i've never put that up because it's sort of yeah a nominee is basically just a loser <laughs>
0: Oh dear. And as a final question before we move on, Gordon, what has this journey taught you about yourself?
1: Um, there's all these cliches about, you know, you can do anything that you put your mind to. That's not necessarily true. If I'd set my heart on on being an astronaut, I'd never been able to, to make that. No, so even if I put everything that I had into it. I wouldn't have been able to do that. There's other kind of restrictions. At one point when I was younger, I wanted to be a pilot, but I'm colourblind. So I was like, I can't, you know, no matter how much, how hard I work, how great I might be at sort of a flight simulation, no one would let me be a pilot because there's just a simple fact I'm colourblind. I wouldn't be able to be an electrician either, no matter how hard I worked at it. But the thing that I have learned, I suppose, is that I've learned a lot about myself and my kind of, strengths and weaknesses so i've learned how to use who i am to the best of my abilities to achieve my dreams and my and my goals so yeah i think that's kind of really important that people get to know the world but really get to know themselves and, and try to identify what their strengths are and what the weaknesses are and where they can improve on things
0: We've talked all about Gordon, the photographer, the wildlife filmmaker. Let's dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, Gordon. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Take me back to early life in Scotland, teenagers, And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Gordon we meet here? Um, not that I knew it at the time, but through my
1: childhood, through my teens, through my 20s, <laughs> into my 30s, the mental health issues there I think as a child you know I was I think probably anxious and worried all of the time with you know my folks split up when you know I was very young and there was other events in life or kind of things that you kind of live through that you think okay well that's not great that's not how any kid should should have to grow up but I didn't think that these things were impacting on me emotionally or mentally and and not that you kind of we thought about mental health back then but in retrospect looking back you know I spent a lot of time you know I enjoyed my own company but in my own company I was worried about small things worried about everything and and I was always probably just trying to kind of distract myself from this a gloomy feeling that i had so subsequently you can cope with that by people cope with it in in other ways you can be lost into that and get sucked into it and somebody would look at you and think okay that's a child that's got mental health issues or you know that's a morose individual whereas i always kind of just tried to use humor to kind of distract myself from the way that i was feeling And, you know, I've continued to do that. And it's annoying for anyone that has to live with me (laughs) most of the time. You know, I think for my wife and kids, I'm always just trying to crack jokes or kind of just just making light of, of everything. But that has been my sort of strategy to kind of try and distract myself from actually feeling quite
0: unhappy and low a lot of the time. I want to talk about 2011 now. Because you describe a mental health epiphany you had at this point, And you realise, like you said, that a lot of mental health difficulties you did have as a child, but you didn't realise. So what sparked this epiphany? And what did you do when you started to become self-aware of your mental health?
1: Yeah, in 2011, I had things. Work was really, really busy. Our kids were really young at the time. So life was, I suppose, more full on than it, than it had ever ever been and you've got a busy life i suppose family life and a busy work life you just sort of keep trying to move forward and then it got to 2011 and i just kind of just wasn't feeling right in my own head and it sort of you know i was getting i was on a trip with some colleagues or kind of good friends just on a big long drive and we were just chatting about different things and i just sort of said i said i think I th- I think I'm depressed I've been thinking I think this is this is depression and then I said it out loud and, and two of my friends in the car were like no 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 you're not you're not depressed that's ridiculous like you know you know definitely not it's not that and I thought, like, well what is it it's oh no because you're not the kind of person that you, you never seem depressed you know far, like complete opposite of it and I think I realized then that I would just put on this mask that just always being upbeat and trying to kind of you know, not trying to be life and soul of the party, but always sort of just having fun and just sort of, you know, being lighthearted and probably seemed as sort of really happy-go-lucky person. But I realised that I got back from that trip and this sort of feeling grew and grew and grew and it got to a point that I kind of lost all control of my emotions. And so just, you know, you crying uncontrollably, got to a point that just sort of sleep was the only place that I could escape and just go to long to go to bed at the end of the day and, and just switch off from everything and then every day I would wake up just think, oh no, here we go again and and it was you know like a physical physical pain and of just getting sucked into this dark hole where nothing like nothing gave me any joy or pleasure you know none of the things in my life that I've got I'm so grateful for my wife and kids you know a career that I love none of that actually meant anything when I felt like that it was like I just I don't want to I don't want to be here this is not how I want to to live and I realized you know very quickly that I needed some help from from professionals. So I went to the doctor and explained how how I felt. And I think because this doctor knew me and he was like, Oh well I'm not sure if it's depression. It might be burnout and then he gave me this questionnaire and he's like, They just sit here, it'll take you ten minutes, just fill out this questionnaire. And he picked up the finished questionnaire. He's like, hmm, yeah. Yeah, I I think we'll get i'll get you on some medication and as it turned out it was a combination of depression and anxiety but burnout on top of that and sort of yeah so it all came together and sort of you know i pulled out of everything i couldn't work i couldn't you know i couldn't do anything really so yeah thankfully i kind of sought help at the kind of early stages of that and then once the kind of the drug started kicking in after a couple of weeks that gloom started to to lift and this of the clouds parted and you know i could start living ag- again there was always this of i felt you know the drugs were giving me a holiday from myself and gave me this opportunity to kind of look back at what happens if you do get pulled under in that way. So I wasn't deliriously happy. It felt like my emotions had just sort of flatlined. So I wasn't overly happy about anything. I wasn't depressed about anything. I was just sort of on, you know, this flat line. It was just a hell of a lot better than it had been, but it wasn't, it kind of didn't feel like a great way to live i kind of wanted to feel my emotions and after a period of time i thought i can come off i can come off them and so i did but yeah it it kind of it's one of these things that just has reoccurred over the last 12 years it sort of comes and goes and you sort of get these warning signs and you can see it coming like a kind of wave on on the horizon and you can avoid it by lifestyle and just being aware of it you know where you're going mentally but then sometimes it just kind of it washes over you and you get sucked back under so i think across the last 10 years it's been maybe four times i've gone back on the medication and just given myself that little that kind of sort of holiday from feeling (laughs) feeling depressed and it always touched with it. it always it's always worked and sort of you brought me back up to the to the surface
0: you spoke there about having the mask on so, when did you feel comfortable taking off the mask to your friends or family?
1: Yeah, I think after you know uh, in two thousand eleven, once I sort of felt that I was able to communicate again, you know, I was telling everyone that we listened sort of about how I was feeling so my all my mates and all my family, and yeah, I think some sort of my closest friends knew that there was some complexities to my character not all negative but they weren't surprised that this sort of thing had happened it was kind of almost they saw things i couldn't see in myself but yeah with that thing of putting on the mask you get so good at pretending to be upbeat and pretending to be happy that you convince yourself of it but it kind of sometimes takes other people to realize that actually you know something might be trouble might be building on the horizon
0: You've obviously gone on medication for your mental health, Gordon, but you also tried counselling. Now, I'm a big advocate on the podcast and doing vent about an individual-based approach to mental health. Now, counselling might work for some people, it worked for me, but it doesn't work for everyone. And it didn't work for you. So why did you find it not helpful when you gave it a go?
1: I think it was probably the first experience. It just, I kind of didn't feel that we were getting anywhere. And I didn't feel that that particular health professional understood, you know, what my problems were. I mean, you know, you go to adopt a GP and you can understand anxiety and depression and they can prescribe something for you. But I thought, you know, I thought I want to try and get to the bottom of, of this. And and maybe naively, I thought that there would be, a, you know, an epiphany and say, you feel like this because of these things. And, you know, after a while, I think maybe kind of four or five visits I kind of I sort of stopped going because I didn't see it helping at all and then I tried again somebody else and it started off well but again it didn't feel that I was getting anywhere and then I'm trying to think 2015 I was just a different counselor that I went to and I used to two visits it just yeah there was a bit of a curtains opening moment of or the sort of blinds been opened and sort of was I really able to look at look at myself and start to understand you know why I feel this way I do believe in my case a lot of it is just genetic and you know depression runs in my family but then I've got three siblings that had the same upbringing as me and experienced the same things through life they don't have these bouts in the same way that I do so that's the interesting thing and you can't just say well grew up in a family of four so if one of you depressed all of you're going to depress It's sort of you know it's so it obviously just doesn't work like that we're all unique individuals and we all have that emotional spectrum I think it's just I'm a very sensitive person and I'm sensitive to other people but I'm sensitive to criticism sensitive to a lot of things but then, on the other hand, I don't, I don't care about a lot of things. I'm not thin-skinned, but I think I'm sort of, I'm, I'm glad that I'm kind of, yeah, I have this particular kind of sensitivity because I think it's, it helps in understanding people and just getting through life if you can empathize with people. And the last bout of counselling just gave me—I think I only had like three sessions—and I was like, Do you know, I think that this is why I am the way that I am. Issues that people have in life, that has a knock-on effect for relationships that you have with your friends and your, and your family. They start causing a problem. You've really got to address those things. So you, know, you can feel depressed and put on a mask and everyone around you thinks, oh, this is fine. But I think once these profound problems that people have start affecting every relationship that you have in life, you've got to try try your best to get to the, to the bottom of it.
0: Let's fast forward to 2020 now and the start of the first COVID-19 lockdown. So you were on medication at this point and, Mm -hmm. you know, suddenly the world stops, especially for your work, which I imagine was literally non-stop most of the time. You could now spend much more of your time with your family, albeit you couldn't actually leave the house. So how was that initial year of COVID-19 for your mental health, mate?
1: Yeah, do you know, it was really good because I'd been offered this chance, I suppose, just to to stop and to stop everything, stop work, you know, not having to get the kids up for school, you know, and I kind of was on medication at the time and I, I was never happy about being on it long term. So I thought, I'm just going to come off this because I realised a lot of the, well, I didn't realise at the time, I just thought I've got an opportunity to kind of pay focus on me without too many stresses so i came off the medication and kind of really felt better than i had done for a long long time and i I kind of realized that a lot of the stress and pressure the things that i'm sensitive to in life they come about because of work because of your commitments to you know your family commitments to just all that life stuff you know that was causing kind of tension and anxiety and because sort of life was put on on hold i realized that a lot of that sort of a lot of those markers disappeared so the first year of lockdown and you know it was as awful a situation as it was for everyone and people far worse off than than us people families going through you know, losing people going through you know the most horrific things i just made the most of being at home and concentrating on my, myself and concentrating on my wife and kids. But then, oddly, this second year of lockdown, I think when there was a knock on effect with work and work didn't bounce back, it's kind of financial worries. Again, I was sort of like, had to go back to the doctor and say, oh, this is like, this sort of happened again. So, in many ways, it's not something I kind of ever really take my eye off. It'll always be there. And as much as counseling can help, I think, you know, you just have to find your own way through it. You know, I'm probably better now than I've ever been at actually recognising depression as it, as it starts to build at its early stage. You know, talking about it helps enormously, but, you know, seeking help, whether it's help from a GP or whether it's help from a counsellor, I think, you know, we've all got to do all that we can to kind of just get get the most out of life and, you know, live the best life that we, that we can it's easier said than done but you know i know people that live with depression you know still think there's that stigma to mental health and don't reach out to the help that's that's available and i you know i just think it's kind of mental health has changed society's understanding of mental health has changed a lot over the last 5 years but you know a couple of years ago i thought i'm not going to talk about my own mental health because I don't want people to think like I'm a mentalist and I don't want sort of people at work to know I thought it would impact on my life in in some way it's different with friends and family but kind of sort of wider society I thought I'm just I'm going to keep that to myself but then you kind of work with people one good thing about suffering from depression is you you get very good at spotting other people that (laughs) suffer from it so you know I'll quite often just bring it up with people that I'm working with that I'm kind of sure that they're struggling with their own mental health and, and talk to them about how I've helped, tried to deal with it and what I've gone through and the, the help that, that I got. Because, yeah, all is not lost. There are things that you can do. There is help out there. And, yeah, after all, you just want for yourself and for other people to get the most out of out of life and not have to live... A half life putting up with a condition that prevents you from enjoying the world and enjoying friendship and enjoying family. It's so destructive and it's so destructive. You just there's so much in life to enjoy that you just have to get over for some people just get over that hurdle of, of dealing with their own depression. Cause it, you know, it's all about you when you're when you're in it. It's sort of, you know, you're not thinking about your friends and your family. You know, it's all consuming. And that's so you know, some people said like, you know, when I was having these episodes like, well look at what you know, look at what you've got and look sort of, you know, you've got an amazing family, you've got great friends, you've got a great job. And you know, all of that I know I don't need somebody. To, don't need somebody to
0: to tell me that.
1: The only thing that I've done is just sought help and found it.
0: Let's reflect then on your mental health journey, Gordon. So we get to 2022 now. You've gone through that 10-year period of being on and off medication with a few relapses in between. So, a, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And b if you could go back and talk to the Gordon in school who was perhaps feeling a little bit directionless in his life before Nick, or the Gordon in the midst of his career swimming in lakes inhabited by giant crocodiles or almost being eaten by a polar bear, or the Gordon who was actually struggling to get on top of his depression, what would you say to him, knowing what you do now?
1: Um, I think, you know, as a child, no one ever kind of, Asked me how I was, I don't think anyone recognised that there's maybe kind of some of my behaviors were not out of the ordinary. But thinking back, if I was sort of I've done this a lot that could kind have of pictured me as a child, and now if this was sort of 2022 and I saw a child like me, and I spent a lot of time on my own, which I you know. I loved doing, I had a really good group of friends, but I did spend a lot of time by myself. You know, if I sort of saw a, a child like that, I think there's something there This sort of, this kid's got, got issues. So, you know, I, I don't know whether it would have made any different, difference if somebody had said, what's going on. It kind of feels inconceivable, you know, in the 80s, no one would have done that. And even working with Nick, as much as we got on and we were lived together for that, extended amount of time it wasn't until the end of my time in Sierra Leone that Nick had said you I know this has been really difficult for you but at no point in that year and a half it was there did he say are you finding this difficult or I've noticed that you know you're struggling in in some way because people just didn't do that they saw the flags but didn't see the flags (laughs) yeah you know I think of you know other friends and family going through things in the past that just sweeping it all under the carpet, which was the only way of dealing with it back then, or the, the, all that you knew to do was just try and hide it and hide from it. I think today, you know, it's just trying to kind of recognise depression as it starts to kind of gets up at sort of ankle level, and you kind know, of hopefully try and sort of stop it from you know dragging you completely under. So speaking to people not just about mental health, but I kind of find just communicating with, with people, that's something that always gives me a real boost. So at a time, you know, if you're suffering from depression, you just want to kind of hide away from from people. And it's the worst thing you can do, you know, reaching out to people and just spending time with people and distracting yourself, you know, I think is a good thing and trying to get pleasure from consolidating these relationships that you have, have in life. But, you know, I think diet, being healthy, you know, walking is something that I really enjoy doing. And I find that recently, if my mental health is starting to, to suffer, I'll kind of look at what have I been doing in the lead up to this? Have I been getting enough exercise? Has my diet been bad? Have I been sleeping badly? You know, have I been drinking too much? And most cases in recent times, it's one of those things, you know, I've just not been taking care of my body physically and I haven't been taken and mentally that sort of is just that rolls all into that if you don't look after your body I think yeah if you're prone to depression that's one of the things that allows it to bubble back up to the surface
0: we've come to our final topic of conversation Gordon and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if they have time it is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health so firstly how is your mental health, mate? Um, <laughs> uh, good. It's been it's been really good. But in the
1: summer, about a month and a half ago, my old watch broke, and I got a a smartwatch, and it told me it said your your heart rate has been higher for the last seven days, and I was like, oh, I've been feeling stressed and anxious for the last seven days. And, and it was kind of using technology. I use technology in my work, but I thought that, oh, this is really clever because this is how it starts. I don't recognize <laughs> it building, but I've got this thing strapped to my wrist that's saying, hey, hang on, this is something you have, there's a sort of physiological response to how you're feeling. And I realized that I hadn't been getting, I hadn't been getting enough sleep. I was letting things get on top of me. So that was it, I myself. And then just a couple of weeks ago, Again, I was feeling kind of just anxiety building and I realized that, I, you know, I wasn't doing any of the things that I kind of take pleasure in. I wasn't going to the gym regularly enough. I wasn't eating as healthily as I, as I should. I was kind of having, you know, actually not having a beer every night, but just at the weekend, you know, we'd, it was kind of parties and events and went and just, you know, enjoyed myself a bit too much. So, you know, when it comes to alcohol, I'm a happy drunk, and I wish that I wasn't. (laughs) I wish that when I got drunk, it caused problems there and then, but actually I feel relaxed. I feel kind of much more engaged and communicative. You know, it makes me feel good, but if you overdo it, it, obviously there's the the come down after that. So I realised a few weeks ago, I was actually kind of doing my best. I was going to the gym, getting lots of exercise, get out on my bike, but there was just some... Parties that were kind of like I thought okay now that's fine we've got stuff going on but there was just sort of too many of them close together and then that's what left me feeling this of this a bit you know a bit of a a come down and I thought that you know that's why so I kind of just sort of was mindful of that and and made sure that I sort of you know just you know not not drinking to excess but you know the knock on effect of sleeping badly eating badly not getting the rest that you need just from you know having a few too many beers.
0: What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Was it 2011 or was it earlier or was it later? Yeah, it was 2011,
1: I think, when the kind of, it felt the kind of world came crashing down and I knew that feeling the way that I did then was far from normal and unacceptable. And yeah, it was at that point I suppose I realized that well I've always felt a bit like this it just built and built to a point that I actually couldn't live I couldn't really live my life I, yeah kind of just getting out of bed was like almost impossible
0: What is the best book or as I call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health Now it can be self help or mental health related but it doesn't exclusively have to be
1: Um Oh gosh that's a good it's a good question I mean I've I've read a lot of books about, about mental health, and they have been helpful, but the types of book that actually really give me a boost are kind of books by really inspiring people. But a lot of biographies, I get a real mental boost from them, because you realise that most people in life have had their own struggles, and it doesn't stop you from achieving amazing things. So I always oh yeah, I got a lot of inspiration, you know, I kind of read It's a biography of Steve Jobs, and he was obviously an incredible, an incredible man, but very complex individual. He kind of got to know himself, and he wasn't he was far from perfect, but you know, he was still able to make his presence known in the world. But I get a big lift from comedy biographies particularly, you know, I think you know, I I read Jack Dee's biography and and that was better than any self-help or mental health book that I had read. It just put a spring in my step. You know, there's a Bob Mortimer one that I read and Vic Greaves. So just sort of, you know, funny people, that always gives me a lift. I kind of think probably respond to funny people more than than anything in, in life.
0: If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health or your attitude towards it, what would it be?
1: Oh, gosh, that's tough.
0: Always take the Um, risk. (laughs) I think probably
1: just get out there is a short and snappy mantra because my mental health in the past has kind of prevented me from doing things that... I would have loved and enjoyed and sort of opportunities and experiences that, you know, I thought, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. It's the last thing in the world that I want to do. And, you know, I kind of realised, I say this to our son, you've just got to kind of get along and get out there and actually face your fears because it's never as bad as... It's not even, it's never as bad as you think it's going to be. There's things that you're dreading that can be a really positive thing. But if you just sort of sit and stick your head under a cushion, you'll never know that. So I think, you know, I'd encourage anyone just to put yourself out there and sort of and take those risks. I don't mean risks that might get you into trouble, but sort of you know risks that you might not have the best time, but it guaranteed most of the things that I've dreaded doing 99% of the time, I've really loved them and they've given me a a boost at a time that I most needed it.
0: And as a final question, this is a broad one, so you can answer it any way you want. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if most importantly, they want to do it?
1: Yeah, I think just kind of school preschool level you know families checking in with their kids and you think well that's what people do all the time and but it doesn't really work like that you know you can share the same space with people and if you don't give them that opportunity to open up and and let them know that it's it's okay to do that you know you can sort of overlook a lot of things and and sort of reinforce this thing of, of actually people not wanting to address their feelings and feel, you know, if somebody's not asking me how I feel, I don't want to be the one to tell them. But, you know, there's been sort of amazing mental health ambassadors in in recent years. I think now, thankfully, more than than ever, it's easier for for men to talk about their mental health. But I think for everyone and anyone is is trying to spot in their friends and among their family, is this person suffering or or struggling? And, And just kind of addressing it head on I don't like beating about the bush and if I've had ever had any issues or problems with people beyond mental health I've always tried to confront it head on not because I'm confrontational I just want to deal with that and move (laughs) beyond it as quickly as possible so yeah I think as it's not easy, but it's it's better now for people to actually kind of open up. I think you know it's sort of for teachers, you know, other professionals, everyone that comes into contact with people is is try recognise that not everyone's okay, and that people do you know need to check in with people and and just find out and get them to open open up and let them know that that's it's okay to do that
0: gordon buchanan it has been a pleasure it's been a privilege a very surreal moment for me but thank you so much for coming on the just checking in podcast and talking to me thank you
1: so much Freddy. it's been great thank
0: you so much well that's all we've got time for in this episode of the just checking in podcast i want to say a big thank you to the wildlife filmmaking legend that is gordon buchanan for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him I'll put a link to where you can follow Gordon on social media and visit his website in the show notes. Some of the stories we mentioned from his films are still on YouTube, so if you want to go see them for yourself and just see some of the absolute amazing experiences he's had, the polar bear one is just absolutely mind-blowing. I can't even believe that was captured on film, to be honest. I'll sign us off by saying, remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. If you like what we're doing here at Venom and want to support us further, you can support us by going to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or you can buy a Vent tea, which is now on our link tree on Redbubble. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay. So thanks.